And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday, the beginning of the Fed meeting. Of course, this is the two-day meeting that starts today with the Federal Reserve. Big question, of course, is, is will they hike rates? The answer is yes, they are going to hike rates by 25 basis points. According to Fed Fund Futures, anyway, that is about 100% assured at this point. And the actual terminal rate. Now, so the terminal rate is where the market expects the Fed to stop hiking rates. That is now above 5%. So markets even kind of pricing in potential. The Fed might say today that we're going to hike rates here, keep a watch on inflation, and we may need to potentially hike some more. That could be one outcome. Uh, the, 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 the large consensus is that the Fed is going to hike today and then say, we're going to pause here. And, and, and they're not going to be this clear about it, but we're going to pause here and, and kind of watch and let the data kind of tell us what to do next. So again, that's kind of the big expectation here is that one more rate hike tomorrow with a Fed pause kind of built into language. We'll see what he says. You know, one of the problems is, remains, right, this uh, really strong employment data that we've had really since uh, last year. Despite a weaker economy, employment and unemployment in particular remains fairly strong. Unemployment down, you know, below 4%. Now, Jerome Powell will go into this meeting uh, today and tomorrow. He'll have the employment data that's due out on Friday in hand. He'll also have a good kind of read on inflation in terms of CPI. So um, he's going to kind of know where these readings are uh, ahead of this. But you know what we do know from the recent uh, personal consumption expenditure report with the GDP is that inflation, ex-housing, and what we call core inflation, and the trimmed mean PCE, which is one thing that the Fed looks at very closely, those really haven't come down a whole lot in terms of inflation. So inflation is still a problem for the Federal Reserve here in terms of monetary policy. And so, you know, the idea they'll be cutting rates anytime soon is certainly not likely on the table anytime, anytime in the near term, right? I mean, we're going to have to see substantially slower economic growth. And, and despite the fact, you know, the one good shot for the bulls of potentially the Fed saying, hey, we need to cut rates was bank failures. And that has barely even moved the markets. Uh, again, you know, over the weekend, we talked about this yesterday, First Republic fails, gets bought by JP Morgan. Market goes absolutely nowhere. Market closed literally flat yesterday. So there was, <laughs> you know, it didn't go anywhere. Uh, still stuck right here at these previous highs. And, and again, you know, market's kind of just waiting and watching to see what happens next. So again, tomorrow when the Fed announces their next rate hike, of course, he'll have his usual press conference following that. And, and again, he's going to be talking in more Fed speak about the economy, the inflation, kind of the outlook for monetary policy. That could literally move this market in either direction. We could either get a breakout to the upside if he comes in extremely dovish. If his language tilts more hawkish, we could see a bit more of a sell-off tomorrow. So again, it's just kind of a wait and see thing to see what happens. And this is that kind of limbo we've been trapped in now for a while. In fact, if you take a look at where the markets kind of finished yesterday, yes, we're back to these highs that we were uh, back in kind of mid-April. 
Um, that's also kind of the same level we were back in February. So really this year, outside of this rally that we had in January, coming out of that December sell-off, the market hasn't really gone anywhere yet. So um, again, this has just been a challenge for investors. Lots of just rotation in the markets. And you know, markets have, are doing okay this year. We're up about 8% for the year. So again, nothing to sneeze at. Uh, the big question is, is what happens next? And this is the big debate everybody's have, having right now between economic data, which continues to be weak, but is not as weak as it was. And we're starting to see some improvement in some of the economic data. So that's one thing. The employment side of this continues to remain strong, suggesting that, well, you know, we're not getting to this big period of layoffs yet. And, you know, outside of this, some of the other indicators in the markets that should have been pointing to a much weaker economic environment, those have bottomed and we're starting to see some improvement there. And yet the economy's kind of all holding together. So it's, it's really a conundrum between the bulls and the bears at this point. You know, a lot of the expectations for a much deeper economic slowdown haven't matured yet. The bulls are, have really kind of maintained control of the market to this point, keeping asset prices elevated this year. And really, when you take a look at back at where we were in January of 2022, you know, the markets aren't down that much here. And uh, again, you know, after kind of the whole fallout that we had last year, lots of concerns over rate hikes, et cetera, the drawdown that we had, the markets have been recovering. You know, that kind of, you know, scenario that was expected of a lot of the bubbles popping all at one time didn't really occur. And this is one thing that we've talked about in our, our newsletter, not this past weekend, but the weekend before was this issue of these kind of this, these rolling hits that the markets had. Yes, we've had numerous impacts to the economy, but they've been spaced out, whether it was the IPO SPAC crash or whether it was the Russia-Ukraine invasion or whether it was, you know, the Fed hiking rates, uh, trimming their balance sheet. These have been spaced out enough for the markets to absorb those hits, rally back, get the next hit, sell off a bit, then rally back. So rather than kind of the bottom just following out of the market all at one time and all of these, you know, kind of all these weaknesses being exposed all at once, they've been staggered in the markets, which has allowed the markets to absorb those hits and, you know, adjust accordingly. And again, this is despite the fact that we've had a very sharp decrease in earnings uh, and particularly earnings estimates, as we said yesterday, there's now, you know, with all the companies that have announced earnings, an 80% beat rate in the markets, but 80% of companies are beating estimates that were lowered more than $50 a share from where they were just in June of last year. So we've had a big reduction in those estimates. Companies are beating those estimates, but that gives kind of bulls hope that maybe, maybe possibly the worst of the economic recession is over. And again, you know, it, it's a hard stretch to get to that point considering a lot of the economic data that we have and the fact that most of these rate hikes that the Fed has put into the market really haven't showed up yet. So there's certainly concern and, and I get it. And this is, the, this is the big challenge that we've talked about as of late is kind of navigating this market between what we think it should be doing and what history says it should be doing based on you know, the economic data and, and financial market inputs and what's actually occurring. And that's really kind of the frustrating part. But tomorrow's gonna be kind of the, the big next step for the markets. You know, will the Fed pause? This has been the whole hope, right? I mean, the market's been rallying since October on this idea of a Fed pause. We may be at that point that the Fed pauses, but 
again, it's not really going to be what they do tomorrow in terms of hiking rates. That's pretty much baked in. We're pretty, pretty sure the Fed's going to hike rates 25 basis points. Certainly not do 50 at this point. Of course, any, the Fed could do anything they wanted. Um, but it's really going to be about the language and the outlook. What does the Fed say about their view on inflation and the economic data? And, and I'm sure uh, a mention of banking stability. I, I'm sure they're going to make some mention about the recent bank failure and what is the strength of the banking system. And there's going to be a lot of focus on that. But that may also be one of the, the inputs into their decision to not hike rates anymore because the, now that the Fed wants to hike and hold, right, we're going we're gonna to get rates to 5% and we're going to hold it there, that's going to put a lot more stress on banks because of the pressure on their assets. The, you know, these higher interest rates is, what's been, what is really what led to the defaults of Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, etc., has been that decrease in the value of their assets on their books because of higher rates. And if the Fed's going to hold it here, that's now going to that higher rate is going to put in an impact and pressure on the assets of many, many other mid-sized regional banks. So we may not be entirely done with that bank stress just yet. All right, wrap it up here. We'll come back. Lots of stuff to get into this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts for The Little Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be. And knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare. Thursday, May 11th with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show So welcome back to the show this morning of course uh, interesting today is the day Right. Actually, yesterday, May the 1st, uh, the new Biden rule comes into effect. So if you're thinking about buying a house and you have good credit and a down payment, you will now be penalized uh, by FHA um, for basically taking out a loan. So if you want a mortgage, it's not going to cost you more. Uh, you'll have about a 75 bit tag on your mortgage rate as an additional fee. Um and that additional fee will go to those with poor credit and no down payment to get them into a house. Now, here's the interesting thing about that, right? So we can have a debate on the fairness of all that. <laughs> you, know, you know, here we go again, 2008, let's promote financial irresponsibility. But the, the idea was this is supposed to combat housing affordability, right? So housing affordability has been a big problem. People with you know, poor credit, they can't afford to get into a house, and we need to get them into a house, right? Even though they can't really afford it, we need to get them into a house. So this is the idea. They'll get a, they'll get a better rate, um, you know, and get subsidized for getting them into a house. So sounds fantastic. It's a good idea. Not really, but that's the idea. Um, here's the interesting byproduct of that. If you try to go get a loan right now, bank lending standards have tightened up markedly. So you're going to go get a loan, and get a mortgage 
right? And so you've got good credit to down payment. Yeah, you can get a mortgage. You're going to get paid. You'll have to pay more for that mortgage, but you'll get it. The problem is, is that nobody's making loans <laughs> to poor credit individuals. You usually try to get a mortgage with a sub 700 credit score. They're not going to give it to you. And, and especially if you have no down payment. So what happens to that additional fee, right? It's just going to get banked up somewhere. Um, but yeah, banks aren't, aren't in the mood right now to loan money to individuals with poor credit quality just because of where we are with the banks. And, and particularly now with the banks facing stress on their asset books anyway because of higher rates, they're certainly not willing to take on more risk at this point in order to, you know, subsidize low-income borrowers. But, you know, it, it's a great – I understand the intention, right? But housing affordability is already a problem because of the fact that we've – it's not individuals with good credit quality buying houses and, and having down payment. That's not what's driving housing unaffordability. It was a combination of zero interest rates for far too long and institutional buyers like BlackRock and others coming in and buying up entire neighborhoods of houses at indiscriminate cost buying to turn them into rentals. And that's inflated asset prices because they didn't care what the price was, right? They were just, they had a bunch of private equity money that was coming in from private investors. They had to deploy it. So they were just buying houses at any price. And so that's lifted the price of homes and have made it unaffordable for many to buy. And, and we certainly get that, right? That's just part of the housing bubble we created. But, you know, the, the penalization of an individual borrower is certainly not fair. Um, and we're certainly not promoting good financial behaviors, right? So how do you get around this idea? So you want to go buy a mortgage or sorry, you want to go get a mortgage to buy a house, how can you get around this fee? Well, first of all, you can do a private loan with you know a bank because this is only through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, et cetera, that these additional fees are being penalized. But of course, if the bank sells off the mortgage to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, you're going to get stuck. So, But you could go private, right? Borrow money privately. Uh, another thing you could do is if you have a fully funded whole life insurance policy, you could borrow against the policy to buy your house get a much lower rate or you could just trash your credit <laughs> spend all your money and uh, go get a house at a cheaper rate and then rebuild your credit rebuild your your cash pile after the fact so you know you know the, the big risk with that last endeavor of course, is that you trash your credit and spend all your cash, which is fantastic. Now you can go and, and get your mortgage. The problem is the bank may not give you one, right? So now you've got trash credit, no cash, and no mortgage. So that's that's the risk of the third one. Um, but, you know, again, it's just, you know, these are bad decisions that government makes. And, and, and again, we have a history of this. You know, we, you know, people complain about the cost of health care. So we pass the Affordable Care Act to help provide health care to those 20 million Americans at the lower income strata to get health care. And here we are a decade later, health care costs have risen dramatically, and those 20 million people still don't have health insurance because they can't afford it. 
There was a poll out just uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, talking about the number of people that have gone without health care due to cost. And you would expect from all the headlines that you see that, well, people just can't afford health care anywhere. So everybody's going out, going without health care in the country. Well, it turns out that by and large, by a large majority, you know, 80 percent of people are paying for health care. And when they have a need, they go to their doctor and see them and have health care. You know, it's just, and then 20% roughly don't, right? They've, they've delayed health care because of cost. And that's kind of just the income strata in the economy. So, again, we, that, that lower rung of the ladder, right, that is in every society, you can't fix that, right? You're always going to have that in, in a capitalistic society, you're going to have a bell curve distribution between the rich and the poor. That's just the way capitalism works and there's nothing wrong with that you can't fix it it's always going to it's 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 societal it's psychology it's behaviors it's a whole variety of things. it's education it's a whole variety of things you can't fix that you can pass all the policies you want and no matter what policies that you pass you can't fix that lower end of that bell curve of poverty what you can do is shove more and more people into that end of the bell curve you can move the bell curve to the left by passing policies that are more socialistic in nature but you can't fix it and every time we try to fix these things right we and, and look they're noble efforts right we need to make sure and have a healthcare system that's free and fair and blah 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 right and it sounds great we need a healthcare system like europe has And every time we try to fix this, we make things worse. We don't make them better. Because you have to allow... Now, capitalism will build you a better healthcare system, right? And and if you allow that to work, and there's great models for this, we've seen doctors employ you know cash payment programs and have provided much cheaper, better quality healthcare. Plastic surgery is a great example of healthcare that continually gets cheaper and, and and improves in quality because you you influence this is a non-insurance program you know plastic surgery is is always elective for the, for the most part mostly elective there's some that is covered by insurance you know burns those type of things but when you but plastic surgery is a good model because it's capitalism at work you have more competition you get better quality and lower cost So we can fix these things or we can choose to try to regulate them and regulate them never leads to better outcomes. So here's another example of this. We want to try to regulate the housing market, which is capitalistic in nature. Housing is probably one of the most capitalistic asset classes we have. People buy an asset. And they can choose to buy it or sell it at a higher or lower price than where they bought it. And you know, right now what we're seeing is higher interest rates are leading to lower prices. And you have a dearth of sellers willing to list their houses. Home listings have dropped sharply, right? I just don't want to sell my house at this point. And again, I, I, this is something I, I noted a couple of years ago. I wrote an article about the housing market. Excuse me. And I said, I said, when interest rates get to a point people that own houses 
with a 3 or 4% mortgage aren't going to sell it because they're not going to sell their house and go buy a house with a 7% mortgage. They're just not going to do that. They'll just say, okay, I'll just sit where I am. I'll wait for rates to come back down again, and then I'll, then I'll see what I'm going to do. And that's exactly what's happening. Why would I sell my house and go buy another house at a higher rate? And now, because of this regulation, right, we're going to make this problem even worse because now people that were maybe thinking about selling their house are going to do one of two things. They're either going to sell their house and go buy a house for cash, if they have it, or they're just not going to sell. They'll go, well, not only am I getting dinged by a higher mortgage rate, now I've got this additional government regulation that's even adding another, you know, up to a 1% fee on top of it that could equate to $40,000 a year on a $400,000 mortgage. Why would I do that? I'll just stay where I am. My house isn't terrible. So now you make housing affordability actually even worse because you extract more supply from the markets. But this is the problem with trying to regulate a capitalistic system. You know, if you want to fix this problem, you just have to go socialism, have government buy all the houses and just distribute the houses to people as, as you see fit, right? <laughs> but who wants that? Well, there's actually a whole group of people that want that, but... <laughs> But the point is, is that these things never work as intended because of the behaviors of the people, right? Again, it's expected that we'll pass this rule and people with good credit will just go ahead and pay up for it, right? They got plenty of money. They'll just pay up for it. And people with no credit, no down payment, they're going to jump all over this, right? Because we're going to give them a subsidy and we're going to slam them into houses they can't afford. And then when all the taxes, the HOA dues, the maintenance, the upkeep, etc. overwhelms them, well, you know, that's going to be their issue. What people never think about in government is how consumers respond behaviorally. And this is why these things never work out the way they're expected. And I doubt this one will either. Be right back. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com So it didn't take long. Uh, yesterday, we were just talking a little bit about AI and, you know, its impact on business ultimately. And, you know, we touched on this idea that, you know, AI is great and it can certainly increase productivity to a great degree. And it will, obviously. My daughter and I were having this conversation last night, you know, because she's uh, she's in college and she's you know trying to figure out you know her her career path and and she's been thinking a lot about this lately. And I said, well, I said you know you've got to do something that can't easily be replaced by AI. And she's like, well, what is that? Because I can't think of any jobs that AI can't do. 
Like, oh, there's jobs that AI can't do. And, you know, it, it, AI is going to have a tough, job, a tough time being an electrician, right? Or contractor or pipe fitter or welder, you know. And she, you know, she's, and of course, she's like, well, we can have a robot do that that AI can program. I'm like, well, that's a fair point. But, you know, we were talking about this yesterday is that, you know, this is going to have, you know, when you talk about industrial revolutions, you know, throughout time, the steam engine, the railroad, the internet, these have all been, you know, such dramatic changes to our economy and how we operate and how we transport goods and services, et cetera. A, you know, the metaverse was never going to be it, right? It, it, we all thought the metaverse was it a couple of years ago, and NFTs and, and digital everything, and that's not it. AI is it. AI will be the thing that changes the next generation for, for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, robotics and, and AI go hand in hand, right? So it's great to have artificial intelligence, and it can do a lot of things like you know, write articles and, and do coding and these type of things. But the, the embedding of AI into robotics, there's your ticket. Now you can do a lot of things, right? You can have you know, robots as bank tellers. You know, et cetera. So a lot of things can be done on this front. And so we talked about this yesterday to a degree. And I just thought it was interesting because just overnight was an article. Goldman predicted about a month ago that AI could lead to some 300 million layoffs among highly paid non-menial workers. Now, hear that, right? What, what did they just say? 300 million layoffs among highly paid non-menial workers. In other words, there are jobs that AI can't do. It's just jobs that we don't want to do, right? Just like my daughter. She goes, I don't want to be a bricklayer. I'm like, I understand. But somebody's got to build the houses. Somebody's got to repair the plumbing. Somebody's got to wire the houses and the cars and everything else, so... Don't knock menial labor. So Goldman says 300 million layoffs among highly paid non-menial workers in U.S. and Europe. As Goldman chief economist put it, using data on occupational tasks in both the U.S. and Europe, we find that roughly two-thirds of current jobs are exposed to some degree of AI automation, and that generative AI could substitute up to one-fourth of current work. Extrapolating our estimates globally suggests that gener generative AI could expose the equivalent of 300 million full-time jobs to automation, and up to two-thirds of occupations could be partially automated by AI. And it's interesting, and, and so what, what jobs are most at risk? To generative AI, and this is according to Goldman Sachs. Office and administrative support, 46%. Legal lawyers, 44%. Architectural and engineering, 37%. Right? AI can draft a house. Life, physical, and social sciences, 36%. Business and financial operations, like financial advisors, 35%. Community and social service, 33%. Management, 32%. Sales and related 
occupations, 31%. Computer and mathematical, 29%. Farming, fishing, and forestry, up to a quarter of those jobs could be replaced. Protective services, 28, healthcare, so forth and so on. The least likely jobs to be replaced by AI, building and grounds cleaning and maintenance. Installation, maintenance and repair, construction and education, uh, sorry, construction and extraction, production, transportation and material moving, personal care services, haircutting, right? Food preparation and related services. So these are things to think about. And, and so Goldman produces this report about a month ago and overnight, Bloomberg has reported that IBM CEO Arvid Krishna, sorry, I'll spit that out, said the company expects to pause hiring for roles that things could be replaced with artificial intelligence in the coming years. As a result, hiring and back office functions such as human resources will be suspended or slowed. These non-customer-facing roles amount to roughly 26,000 workers. I could easily see 30% of that getting replaced by AI and automation over a five-year period. That's about 8,000 jobs getting lost at IBM. That's just one company. So this is going to be an interesting challenge, right? There's, from an investment side of this, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to make money if you've got money to invest. And corporate profit margins could theoretically remain much more elevated than we've seen historically because of the replacement of the most expensive cost of any business, which is employees. Why? Because they want $15 hour minimum wage, they want health care benefits, parental time off, paid leave, blah, 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 blah. Insurance. That's costly. So if I can, for every employee I can replace, you know, this is, you know, one of the things that people misunderstand about business is they go, well, I don't really understand why we just can't pay Brent fifty-five, you know, $50,000 a year because that's not that much money. We just pay Brent 50000 Well, that's fine. But see, it's not just the fifty thousand. By the time that I pay Brent his fifty thousand, and he cost me a lot more than that, by the way. Um, by the time I pay Brent his fifty thousand, I also have to pay payroll tax, Social Security tax, FICA, FUTA, healthcare costs, blah blah blah, and I now have to also provide him a workspace, computers, all these other things. So you can just tack on an additional 20 to 25% on whatever salary you want. So $100,000 salary, 120, 125,000 all in cost on that. So if I can replace a $100,000 a year employee, I can put 125000 back onto my bottom line. That's not even to mention if I can start reducing the footprint of my commercial offices, right? All my real estate space, my rental office, you know, my rents, those type of things. That's additional savings. That all goes right to the, that, that, those dollars go right to the bottom line and improve profitability for companies. So from an investing standpoint, AI is going to be fantastic. From a societal economic growth situation, it's not going to be so good. 
because you're going to start shoving people down towards the lower income scales of where they can get jobs. I can't get it. You know, I, I went to law school for eight years and I can't get a job. I'll go flip burgers. I'm not, I'm not picking a lawyer's this morning. It was just number two on the list. <laughs> not that I have any affinity for lawyers, but, um, you know, office administrative support. Number one, I mean, that's easy to replace with AI. You know, so these are the things that have a, they do have a dark side to them. They, from an investment standpoint, if you've got money to invest, there's going to be some fantastic money to make in the companies that are going to lead the way on artificial intelligence and robotics. There's going to be new IPOs that are coming out of just fantastic companies. But the economic, socioeconomic ills are going to be problematic. And that's not to even mention the potential that something just goes off the rails with AI and we wind up with Skynet at some point. But that's a whole different uh, scenario. <laughs> at least we know Arnold Schwarzenegger will have a job. But, you know, these are just the things to think about. I just And I just thought it was interesting that we were just talking about this yesterday. And, you know, overnight, IBM is already making... And, of course, you know, if, if there's anybody in the industry that is going to understand the impacts of AI and what you can do with it would be IBM. They need all the help they can get anyway. But <laughs> maybe artificial intelligence will help them. Um but there you go. That, that we have that. All right. So anyway, just something I thought was very interesting. Just something to think about. The the implications of it are real, and they are coming at even faster pace than I think what many people realize. So good and bad. Something to think about, especially when you talk to your kids about what jobs they select for the future. All right. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so jenny craig is going on a diet they are uh, preparing for potential bankruptcy, laying off uh, lots of workers now. So apparently Jenny Craig went too far on their diet plan. Uh, actually just lost out to Weight, weight, weight Watchers um, was the battle that was going on for a long time. And finally, we now know who the victor of that is. So, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing, Subway is another good example. They've closed 500 stores. They're preparing for an IPO. So you'll soon be able to get your foot long in the form of a stock. And 
so they're cutting costs heavily. But these are all job losses, right? We were just talking about layoffs a minute ago. And despite the fact that we still haven't seen a tick up in the unemployment rate, we are seeing more and more companies every week lay off workers. And this is, you know, part of it is streamlining and reorganizing. There's, you know, a lot of subway stores are not profitable. They're in bad areas, you know, whatever it is. So wanting to clean up their books, right, and, and, and become streamlined and cash rich for an IPO. And, 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 you know, potentially, you know, they're trying to get about $10 billion in the IPO for, you know, Subway. They've got to get their books cleaned up, but these are job losses, right? Somebody's losing their job somewhere, right? Jenny Craig, cutting, cutting jobs. You know, and, and this has been kind of the conundrum, right? Because it's like we have all these layoffs. We see continuing claims continuing to rise. And on Thursday this week, we will see jobless claims data. This is data that the Fed will have on their meeting today and tomorrow. They'll, they'll already know what jobless claims numbers are. But we can continue to see them tick up mildly. But we're not seeing a big spike in unemployment which has been kind of one of the conundrums for a lot of the bears going, you know, you know, I'm short markets and I, you know, I'm betting heavily on a big decline in, in asset prices, the economy, et cetera. But employment's holding in there, right? We continue to see jobs being created. Yes, we're having layoffs. And this is one of the big conundrums and I don't have an easy answer for you. I wish I did. We just have to look at the data at face value. And understand that a lot of this data will be revised at some point. The revisions will come later. And we'll probably look back at this period and go, oh, yeah, we weren't creating 200,000 jobs a month. We were creating 50,000 jobs. Or we had no job growth in 2023 at all. right? But we won't know that you know, for a while. So in the meantime, we can make some assumptions about where we think things are, but we also have to take the data at face value because that's how the markets take the data. And this is the important part, the important point of last week's article. On Friday, I published, I finally published that article called Conviction. I encourage you to read it if you haven't read it yet. But the point about conviction is that we have to deal with the market that we have. And yes, at times the market can remain illogical. And, you know, the debate that goes on in our office every single day is this dichotomy between what's happening in the markets and what the economic data says. Or what the market is doing versus what history says it should be doing. And that's, that, you know, it's like, how do we manage for that? You know, at any moment, we could just wake up and the market's down, you know, 1,000 points. But yet that hasn't happened, right? The expectation is it's going to happen. It's right around the corner and just any day now... There's going to be this real big downshift in economic activity and things are just going to start to buckle under the weight of higher interest rates, debt, etc. But yet we have bank crises, we have 
higher interest rates. We have slowing earnings growth. We have all these things, and yet the market doesn't buckle. The market keeps absorbing these hits. Now, can the market continue to do that? I don't know. And that's the, and seeing that, and therein lies the big challenge, right? How do we navigate that? And this is going to be one of the challenges that we have, of course, over the, the over the course of the next several months, is that we may just need to be allocated to the markets and just be ready to respond quickly if or when something does actually start to break. Yeah, maybe. You know, that initial break clips 5% on its way down to 10, 15, or 20%, you know, whatever your most negative expectations are. So maybe you take a little bit of a hit, right? It's, it's, it's you, you swerve out of the way of oncoming car, but it clips the rear end of the car, right? You, you get a little ding, but the car's still okay. See, the expectation of investors is, is that, well, if I'm in and the market goes down, I'm just going to get pummeled by the market because you're not going to get out. And that's that's the attitude. I'm just going to I'm just going to get hammered on this. It's just going to go down. I'm going to lose all this money. But the market continues to go up, which means you're also losing money by not being invested. This is the big challenge, right? It's how do you bet on this market? That's the that's. That's the big debate. You know, if you're playing poker, you could just fold on every hand. You're not going to lose any money, but you're not going to make any money either. Even though you've got a royal flush sitting in front of you, you fold your hand because you're worried that somebody might have a better hand. So we have to make that decision. At some point, we have to invest some capital. Doesn't mean you have to invest everything. Doesn't mean you have to be 100% long stocks. But at some point, we've got to look at the markets and simply say, the markets are rising. We need to be invested to some degree. Again, you don't have to be 100% invested either. There's nothing wrong with holding some cash, but holding an excessive amount of cash can be just as detrimental as being fully invested. And again, the, you know, the one thing that always, you know, we have to think about is that we have the ability to change course at any single moment. If the market begins a more serious decline, you know, tomorrow the market's down and the Fed comes out and says, hey, we're going to hike. We're hiking a full basis point. We just don't see any impact to inflation. So we're just going to kill it right now. I'm not saying they're going to do this. But at that point, you go to cash. Say, pfft. That'll do it. That'll break it. Or you wake up six months from now and there's another bank crisis. And this time it's something more severe and the markets are down sharply that morning. Great. So you get out then. You have the ability to make changes. You know, this is the problem with buy and hold investing, which is I'm just going to ride this thing up and down and just kind of hope everything works out okay. But at the same time, you don't have to avoid the financial markets entirely just at the risk of potentially losing money. And if you think about it in terms of playing poker, that's exactly what you do. Any game of chance. When you're playing any game of chance, you are taking the risk of losing money on a hand, two hands, 
three hands, whatever it is. But the hope is that eventually you'll win more than you lose, and that's the goal of investing as well. And so we can't make money if we don't take some risk. And it doesn't mean that we can't extract our capital if risk becomes too elevated. And so we need to change the way we think about markets from a fear-based perspective to a risk perspective. Again, I don't want to be greedy either, right? I don't want to be, I'm, I'm all in because of whatever. That's also just as risky as being all out. But if I change it to a risk-based perspective and I just say, what is my risk and how much am I willing to bet on this current level of risk, then you'll be okay. Again, one of the potential issues is that people go, I don't want, I'm not wanting to take any risk and that's okay. But we've seen this before as well. Back in 2009, people were going, I don't want to take any risk in the markets. I think the markets are done. They're over with. They're going to zero. Ten years later, they're still out of the market. And they missed a 400% advance. Sometimes missing the decline can be just as detrimental to you as missing the advance. You know, if I miss the entire advance, I might as well have just gone through the crash because the outcome is basically the same on my financial outcomes. And if you can't navigate between that view, right, if your entire view is always based on fear, then just buy and hold. You'll be better off over, over a long enough time frame just buy and hold. Buy an index, sit on it, shut your eyes and add to it, and it's, it's not going to be great, but it's going to be better for your financial outcome than not being invested at all. Just something to think about. Anyway, that wraps up the show for the day. Of course, we'll be back tomorrow. Danny Ratliff will join me in the morning. Uh, stick around. Make sure you subscribe to our Before the Bell channel. That's where we post our three minutes on markets and money every day. So make sure you're subscribed to there as well as this channel. Uh, click that little bell icon so you get notified. Make sure you're subscribed to this channel as well so we can keep you updated and informed about markets and money every single day right here on The Real Investment Show. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.